This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! Welcome to a Men in Blazers pod special. This international break, and I wish I was being hyperbolic, the US men's national team will play two of the most important games of its modern history. World Cup qualifiers against Honduras in San Jose and Panama in Panama City, Panama. Sadly not Panama City, Florida. The games will be played without a safety net. The programme finds itself perched precariously on uncharted terrain, having slumped a defeat in its first two games of the Hex back in November. Something no US team has ever done and no CONCACAF nation has ever done, and then qualified for the World Cup. The results saw US soccer slam the door on the Jurgen Klinsmann era and call back a hardened veteran coach, the man who managed the team from 1998 to 2006, in an attempt to try and right the course to Russia 2018. Yes, cometh the hour, cometh Bruce Arena. Last week, we travelled to Los Angeles to sit down with Bruce at the Fox Soccer Studios just minutes after he'd announced his roster for these two matches. And we spoke about his change process, the unique challenge of picking up a team mid-cycle, his tactical master plan for the two games ahead, and the potential devastation to the profile of the game in the United States if our team do the unthinkable and fail to qualify for a World Cup. We started right at the top with why he's diving back into the belly of the beast and jumping headfirst into the deep end of the treacherous whirlpool that is CONCACAF World Cup qualifying. Our guest today is one of the founding fathers of modern American soccer helping usher both Major League Soccer and the U.S. men's national team into their current eras. In 1998, he inherited the flotsam and jetsam of a U.S. team fresh off the ignominy of crashing out of the World Cup in France. Four years later, he transformed that team and led them to the quarterfinals in South Korea and Japan, the team's best World Cup finish in more than 80 years. Oh, I long for those days, the 1930s. In addition to his accomplishments with the national team, he's one of only two coaches in Major League Soccer history with more than 200 career wins, racking them up with DC United, New York Red Bulls and the Los Angeles Galaxy. We welcome to the pod a five-time MLS Cup winner, the only man to lead the US at two World Cups, and the winningest men's coach in this country's history. Please, God, our World Cup saviour. Welcome to the pod, Mr. Bruce Arena. Well, thank you. It's great to be here today. I didn't like the founding father. I thought that was George Washington. Ah, <sighs> oh, George Washington. Well, you're making me feel old. Huge football fan. We are on the set at Fox. You've just come from announcing your first US squad of this second go-around. You're back in command. Rob Stone's barely aged since 2006, has he, Bruce? He's not a founding father, that's for sure. Oh, he's looking good. But you are 
an American soccer legend. One of the few coaches to have been involved in MLS from day one. I watched DC that first season so long ago. Bob Bradley had all his own hair. I even had a few tufts of my own. You're an institution at the LA Galaxy. You were the architect of three MLS cut runs, two supporter shields in eight seasons. You have nothing left to prove in American soccer terms. Nothing. Did you have itchy feet? Or was it more that you heard the call of national duty? A response to something you've worked so hard to build. I mean, it was on the precipice of crumbling. I've been part of the game in this country in the early years when we had no respect and the sport was going nowhere, and we've built it to this point. And I think it's got to continue to move forward. And not qualifying for Russia would be a failure. So to have that kind of responsibility, I embrace that. What do you have to prove, though, Bruce? And who to? I think I have to prove that I'm a good coach, that I can bring a collection of players together and form a good team and position our team to be in Russia. I mean, you've won so much, so often in MLS. And thinking about good coach and proving, was there ever a day in your club management career when you thought, I'm going to go, I'm going to try and coach abroad. I'm going to go to England or Germany or Spain. I've certainly given it a thought many times. I don't think an American coach has ever gotten respect. The real pioneer has been Bob Bradley, that he went to Egypt and Norway and France. Uh, France and England, and he really demonstrated that Americans can coach. I know that his experience in England wasn't what he wanted, but I think Bob proved to a lot of people that he can coach in that league. You thought about it, but you didn't go. What made you decide to stay I, here? I had an offer after the 2006 World Cup and turned it down. I thought at the time it was going to be too difficult to jump right back into club football in August of that year. And you look back at it and perhaps you say it was a mistake. Are you able to tell us who that is, that team? Or what league it was in? It was in Denmark. Bromby. Oh, mighty, mighty Bromby. A road not taken. You step back in, though. You grab onto the national team ship wheel when the US, your US now, are in turbulent waters. Sunil Galati said when you were rehired, he said you had, quote, experience at the international level and understanding of the requirements needed to lead a team through World Cup qualifying. But to what extent has US soccer changed since you were last at the helm? It's changed in a lot of ways. Just on a technical area, there's a greater pool of players. The American player today is a lot more experienced than he was 10, 15 years ago. I think U.S. soccer in itself has great resources today. So we're really positioned where there's no reason why we can't succeed. I inherit a program that, although it lost its first two games in qualifying in the hex, it's greatly supported and they've given us everything we need to make this team successful. You've overseen a January camp with a glut of MLS internationals. How does the talent pool compare to the ones that you oversaw back in 2002 and 2006? The only way you ever answer that is, does this group qualify for the next World Cup? And then how do we do? And then you can compare to 2010, to 2014, 2006, 2002. But the 2002 team really set a standard for where we want to go as a nation and competing in a World Cup. To me, there's no reason to believe that future national teams can't achieve as much as the 2002 team did, and perhaps better. But how's CONCACAF changed since you were last powering through the hex? 2006 World Cup, ahead of that, you won seven, drew one, lost just two. What's changed as you look at game film in terms of the quality, the tactical awareness, the infrastructure, 
the entire nature yeah. of the challenge. CONCACAF is much better, and all the countries have experienced coaches from around the world. Their facilities improve. Their players are more experienced. Players for Honduras play in other parts of the world, as do Panama, and they bring those experiences back. Nice part of the venues are better. We used to play in the old days where the conditions on the field are impossible, let alone outside the field, and that was challenging. CONCACAF as an association has grown. They're much more organized than they were 10 years ago, which makes it a little fair in terms of the competition on the field. You're taking over the U.S. men's national team mid-cycle. It is a tricky game, a dangerous game, particularly after the dud false start nature of the first two games, which has removed your safety net. Your mission to transform the team's performance. I'm interested to hear about your methodology, the process through which you go and analyze the cultural problems within the team and assess what you need to change. How do you do that? I looked at the games in 2016, analyzed it both from a technical perspective and probably a mental perspective. Technically and tactically, we weren't right. I don't think the players are prepared the way they need to be prepared. So we've got to make that better. Mentally, to me, they collapsed in the game against Costa Rica. So You could uh, see that just by watching yeah. the game film. So over the last three months, we've worked real hard to talk to the players about their role, the importance of playing for the U.S. team, and becoming a team once we come together in San Jose. I think the message is out to the players. I have a lot of experience. I've been coaching a long time, probably more years than your age. So I understand how to get the, the temperature. You're 68? I'm, I'm, I'm older than I look. Well, then uh, I, haven't co- I haven't coached 68 <laughs> years yet. But I understand the temperature of a team and have the right feel. And when we get them together this Sunday in San Jose, I expect nothing but an eager group of players ready to go. And we'll balance out all of that stuff. Any kind of issues that come up, we'll deal with them. And I can promise you when Friday comes around, we're going to be ready to play against Honduras. Uh, I'm interested in how you use that time because you have such little time as an international coach. Club coach, you see them day in, day out in training. But you've got the guys coming in Sunday, light training to recover. Really, two or three most days to actually train on the field. And I don't mean this to be an offensive question. How much can you actually do in that time? You can do a lot, and we've done a lot over the last three months. We're going to talk with every player individually. We've worked real hard in developing a game plan for game one. We've worked real hard in understanding what we need to do in training. And the players coming in understand what's expected of them. So I think when they come in on Sunday, they're not going to be surprised by anything. They're going to be fully prepared for what lies ahead. You talk about message that you've been delivering now for weeks, even months, to the team. The great British relegation dodger, Tony Poulis, is famous for paratrooping into slumping relegation zone teams and saying calmly, but probably quite menacingly to his players in their first meeting, he says, do you think any of us are going to be relegated? Put your hand up and leave now. And then he leaves in silence and goes onto the training field. What's your first message to this team? We need to win, period. Our goal on Friday is to win. That message has been clear to the team and... They know that all 24 individuals that come into camp have got to work towards us achieving that goal. So everyone's expected to be on their best behavior. Everyone's expected to contribute, whether you step on the field in these games or not. We really want to have a team. And if we do that and we put all our energy together, there's no reason to believe we can't be successful. How do you communicate with your players and how often? Are you a big texter? Are you a WhatsApper? Do you slide into the old DMs? 
use the phone to either call or text. We send emails. We send videos to analyze some of their play at the club level. And we visit them in person. So every play on this roster knows me now. So when they come in, there's going to be no surprises. We've met each other in person. We've talked and we understand each other. You've gone on European tours, two of them, if I understand it, to meet the players who you've not had time with yet in camp, your Bobby Woods, your Fabian Johnsons, your John Brooks. They're such a crucial part of the team culture. How do you make sure they mesh from the word go? I mean, this is not a lip service question, Bruce. I'm interested tactically in what you do step by step with these players so that when they do come in, they are ready to fit in and work. I have a pretty good feel who's going to play on Friday or a starting lineup is going to be. There might be a change or two on that. So if but I were to ask you now what your starting 11 is for Friday, you, you know I what it is. I could tell you, head. but I'm yep. not going to tell you, but I could tell you. And a lot of them understand. We've talked about their responsibilities on the field and the things they need to do the week of training. We've gone from as much as we know that you have a long plane ride. You come off the plane in San Jose, you've got to be ready to go. And we've really gone over all the steps necessary for them to be prepared to play. Do they know what the starting 11 is? They do not know. But when you travel to see the European players, December and I think again in February, what do you learn from those home visits about how these players are going to either mesh with your starting lineup or not mesh with your starting lineup? I think from years of experience as a coach, you understand that. They get to know me, I get to know them, and they understand the expectations. I get to see up close and personal their qualities both on and off the field. So watching them play whether it was in the Bundesliga or the Premiership or the Championship or in Mexico. The job of any coach is to take this collection of individuals and make them into a team. So I have a sense for their strengths and weaknesses. I have a sense for the issues in the past, and we've got to bring this all together and get it right. One of the fascinating challenges, I imagine, of being a U.S. coach, which I'm still hoping one day Sunil will give me my opportunity, You're assessing apples and oranges more than most coaches. The English coach is really looking at players who are in the Premier League and one or two who play abroad. But you've got to look at the abilities and potential of a starter in Liga MX. Compare that with a squad player in the Premier League or a sub in the Bundesliga or a starter in MLS. How do you assess the differences? The luxury I have is I've had eight years of doing that previously. I've coached the national team for eight years, and it was the same issues then. But is it you know, gut? Is it just gut? I mean, you uh, just naturally it, it, intuit it, it. it. It's gut, it's experience, it's knowledge. I think even if you coach in Brazil, you know, the Brazilian national team coach, he's not looking at a whole lot of reserves elsewhere, but he has players all over the world, as does the Argentine coach. Every national team coach has an issue. Maybe if you coach in Germany, it's a little bit more comfortable since most of your players are playing in the Bundesliga. Years ago, you'd have more time together, but as the sport has grown and the calendar has been jammed at both the club and international level, you have less time. And in this case, my challenge is very unique in the fact that I'm coming two games into the hex with very little actual time with the team together. Which is uncharted for you, so your process is abbreviated. Yeah, but that's the part where my background probably makes that workable. In what way? I have the experience and understanding what lies ahead, and I know how to blend these players together. So I'm real excited. You asked me, why are you doing this? It's a challenge. It's a great challenge. So can I take all of my experiences and put it into this program and make them successful? So like the players, they have to respond on the field in these two games. 
I need to respond when they show up on Sunday and get them together collectively and win some games. Does it matter to you that the European leagues are at the end of their season? MLS is really only beginning. It impacted the roster. All things being equal, probably leaned a little bit on the players that have been in form for a while and have played a lot. So on this roster, there were a number of MLS players I could have chosen. However, I felt that we needed to have some players that have been playing on a regular basis in good form. And if things were close, I probably leaned a little bit more towards the player that's been playing on a regular basis. Well, I've got to ask you before we talk about the roster. What are your weekend football watching habits like, Bruce Arena? Are you tuning in to see DeAndre Yedlin play for Newcastle in the morning, MLS in the afternoon, Liga MX in the evening? All of it. When I was national team coach previously, I very rarely had a chance to see any of our players play. On a given weekend, I basically was able to see a whole pool of players. It's absolutely remarkable today. So I've admired greatly from these visits as the Bundesliga. I think it's a fabulous league. It's exciting, great venues good players. They get after it. Their tactics are interesting. A lot of them play with back threes. And I've become a real fan of the Bundesliga. How much game film are you watching and how do you analyze it? Well, watching a lot. I see as many games as possible. Last weekend, I went to a game in Kansas City and recorded six or seven games. I follow the players pretty closely. You've just announced your 24. We're here on the Fox set minutes after you have announced it to an eager nation. We really have good players. Balancing the team the right way with the experienced players and then the young, talented players. This Christian Pulisic is an unbelievable player. Reminds me a little bit of Landon Donovan when Landon was 19 years old. Bobby Wood is an excellent striker. Fantastic. He's a young player. I think this Kellen Acosta, who's on our roster out of Dallas, is an exciting young player. Sebastian Legette with the LA Galaxy. Young center back and Walker Zimmerman. There are many others that could have been on this roster. And then you have the experienced players, our goalkeepers, Howard Gazan, Ramondo. Back line, you look at Beasley, a real veteran. and I'd file him under the young, upcoming talent. Yeah. Michael Bradley. Josie's 27 years old, but with a unbelievable amount of experience. Fabian Johnson, Clint Dempsey. So we've got a nice balance of experienced players and young players that I think can make this team successful. Clint Dempsey, back after six months out with his heart irregularity. What role do you see for him now? Right now, a reduced role, but a luxury to have on your roster. I think by the end of the week, he'll be back to being Clint, feeling pretty comfortable and feeling that he can score a goal in any game. You talk about a luxury. That's a player who's used to being a necessity for 90. And I talked to Clint about it this week. He understands that. I think it's important to have him on our roster. I think he's a real plus. It's also important to move him back into playing on a full-time basis the right way and not to push him too hard yet at the international level. However, my expectations are that he's going to be a great player in our squad. If he steps on the field, he's going to contribute. He's one of the great players in the history of U.S. soccer, and it's wonderful to have him on our roster. You inherit a young player, Christian Pulisic, 18-year-old, but one with Bundesliga Champions League experience. Is any part of you concerned about putting too much pressure on him too soon or because the proverbial shackles have already been removed by Dortmund, do you let him just go out there into the centre and do his thing? It's a good question. We're not building our team around Christian, but we think he's going to be an important player. I've been admiring the way he's played over the last couple of months at Dortmund. Absolutely remarkable. So I think he's not going to be in awe of anything when he steps on the field in San Jose. If he can play in a Champions League game, 
I think he can survive in a World Cup qualifying game in CONCACAF. However, I still realize he's 18 years old and he has relatively little experience in World Cup qualifying. However, at the end of the day, I expect that he's going to respond pretty well to all of these challenges. How good is he in relation to past U.S. starlets, Landon Donovan at the same age? He reminds me a lot of Landon. Even though different positions, Landon was more or less a forward striker at that time. Christian's a midfielder, whether he's playing centrally or wide, and he's a two-way player. He's done a remarkable job at Dortmund, so he's a talented kid. I think every year he's obviously going to get better, and where he ultimately plays remains to be seen, but... He's certainly an incredible talent to have. What was your hardest decision in terms of the roster? One player you wish you could have brought? There are a lot of players in MLS. Timmy Chandler's one in Germany. You know, he's suspended for the Honduras game, and I didn't think it was necessary to have two suspended players on a roster because Jermaine Jones is one as well. So I chose to keep Timmy at home. But in MLS, everyone's going to say, why not Sasha Kleschen? Why not Benny Feilhaber, Matt Beisler? Jewish Messi, Steve Birnbaum. Steve Birnbaum, yes, and they all have an argument as to being on the roster. I thought Walker Zimmerman has been outstanding for Dallas. He continues to grow, and I think we've got to bleed some of these young players as well. I realize that we don't have any time to experiment. At the same time, I think we've got to start giving some of our young, talented players experience as well. So this time around, Walker Zimmerman's part of it, Kellen Acosta, Sebastian Legit. Jorge Viafana, Michael Orozco only has six or seven caps, Jordan Morris. These are all talented guys. you got to make a decision at some point. And at the same time, we have a bunch of really experienced players as well. So we have to have the right balance. And if any of those players you mentioned and I've mentioned have an argument, they do. I could have selected six or seven other players. You've got a depth chart in your mind. How much did January camp change that depth chart? And how much did January camp just confirm your analysis? A little both. Dax McCarty and Kellen Acosta and Zimmerman and Legit made an argument in that camp, as did Jordan Morris. Jordan Morris was very good in our camp. I think Nick Romando convinced me that he can still play and contribute to this team. So that camp was invaluable as well. Two enormous, enormous hex games now loom. March 24th against Honduras in San Jose. March 28th on the road in Panama City. Can you talk about the opposition research you do? Who gathers the scouting intelligence? Our head scout at U.S. Soccer is Thomas Rangan. He's been on the road watching Honduras and Panama. We do a lot of film work. We've had three months to look at Honduras and Panama on film. We have scouting reports now for both of them. This week, we're finalizing edits to show our players so we know all the individuals for for both rosters, for Honduras and Panama. We have a pretty good feel how we want to play. Our players are not going to lack any information. And you you know the starting 11. When did that eureka moment occur when you looked at yourself and said, I know who I'm going to go? Coaches do this all the time. We have starting 11s all the time, and it changes and changes, and I've been tinkering for three months on a piece of paper. However, as you see players coming into form, players falling out of form, having an injury, a suspension, all those things, it changes. But as we enter this camp, I have a pretty good understanding. I'm not going to tell our team that we're going to go out and train Monday and we have competition for 11 positions. We're not that stupid. We have to be smart and understand how we're going to play on Friday against Honduras and who our starting 11 is. When do you tell them? Probably by Wednesday. 
Wednesday or Thursday, they'll know the starting lineup. It won't be happening on Friday morning. DeMarcus plus 10. Yes, DeMarcus plus 10. What's your goal for these two games? Is anything less than four points a real nightmare scenario? Not a nightmare. I think anything less than three points is. My goal is six points. Tactically, will you set the teams out differently for the two games? One being at home, one on the road, the Hondurans with their back five difficult to break down. Or do you believe that the U.S. should just enforce their style of play proactively, whoever they play, to get matched? I'd like points? to do that in both games. However, you've got to look at how we perform against Honduras, how we come out of the game. Is there an injury? Is there a suspension? Do we win? Does Panama lose? I mean, you've got to assess a lot of things before you organize the team for the game against Panama. Our whole focus is on Honduras right now. And right after the game against Honduras, we'll focus on Panama and we'll take into account all of the different issues that come into play. When you look at world football and the hierarchy of international teams, there's the elite, the Argentinas, the Germanys, there's the chasing pack, France, Uruguay, Colombia, the wild cards, Italy, Croatia, Mexico. In your analysis, not by FIFA's kind of slightly crazy rankings, but in reality, quality of play, quality of squad, how far back are your US right now? We're probably not going to win the next World Cup. Breaking news. I've said this a lot of times. People always talk about how many talented players Brazil has or Argentina. And my response to that is they can only play 11. I could care less if they have 5,000 players playing in Europe, and that's Brazil. They can only put 11 on the field. And when we put 11 of our players on the field, they can compete with anybody. I expect some real good things ahead for the U.S. team. Brazil, we've got Benny Fileharbor, and we're not giving him back, if you're listening. I want to raise for a moment, just a moment, the unthinkable. The U.S., as you said, they're in uncharted waters. We've never lost the opening two games of the Hex before. How catastrophic would it be for the game in this country if the U.S. failed to qualify for the 2018 World Cup? The sport isn't going to go away. We would respond in an unheralded fashion. We would be unbelievable trying to get our country back. But I don't think that's going to happen. We're going to qualify for the next World Cup. But it would set us back if we didn't qualify. So it's critically important. I know that. The players know that. We're going to do everything we can. You're a confident man. You win things. Have you at any time since you took this job in November let it cross your mind even for a minute, the contemplation of failure? Since I've taken this job, I've constantly thought about how fortunate I am to have it. I think it's a great position to be in and a great challenge. So from percentages of uh, your surety that we're going to qualify for World Cup 2018, if you were to put a percentage on it? I won't put a percentage on it, but I'm betting on the U.S. to qualify. If you're betting, I'm a betting man, I'm going to put my bar mitts for savings on that too. Bruce, to close, in your career, you've led the US men deeper into the World Cup than anyone. You've dominated MLS. You have won, this is mind-boggling, you've won almost a quarter of MLS Cups that have been played in history. You've already got your face, whether you like to talk about it like this or not, on the side of American soccer Mount Rushmore. I've got to ask you one more time. You're about to enter 201 days of hex competition. Intense hex competition. Why are you donning the armor and entering the heat of battle one more time? I'm indebted to American soccer, U.S. soccer. It's done a lot for me. It's given me a great career. I've made a great living from it. I've been very fortunate to be part of this. I was a young coach 
in the 70s, learning how to coach from Walt Chisowitz, who is a real pioneer of the game in this country, Bob Gansler, those gentlemen that worked their tails off to make this sport something in this country, and got on the bandwagon and tasted success along the way. I'm grateful for all of that. Fortunate to have an opportunity to start our professional league again in 1996, the coach our Olympic team in 96, World Cups in 2002 and 2006. All of those things. I've benefited from the sport in this country. We're at a time now where we're being tested. I'm the biggest supporter of U.S. soccer, and I want to be part of quieting the critics and getting our team into Russia and being successful there as well. But that 2002 World Cup, an astonishing athletic feat by the collective which you led, the greatest days for the U.S. men's national team in their history. That buzz that you experience in that tournament, is that ultimately what's pulling you back? That, the thrill to taste that one more time? I'd love to be part of that again. That's why we're going to work so hard to get our team to Russia and not only be happy to be there, but be demanding of ourselves to move forward. Bruce Arena, thousands of American soccer fans listening to this will join me in wishing you and the U.S. men's national team 2.0. Godspeed and God bless America. And if I can ask everyone out there, we need your support along the way. It's not going to be a smooth sailing ship in 2017. I think there's going to be some bumps and some waves, I guess, if we're talking about a ship. But we're going to deal with all of it and we're going to qualify. There's no need to be afraid. Friday night's game against Honduras from San Jose. Football without a safety net will be at 10.30pm Eastern Time on Fox Sports 1. Rob Stone won't let them lose. Next Tuesday's match against Panama will be at 10pm Eastern Time on Being Sports. I think we may have Ray Hudson for that one. In the words of Ian Dark, Go, go, USA.